This presentation is from Design Research 2021, Day 1. Hi, Dahlia. Welcome. Um, our, our next... Uh, hello. Um, hey, how's it going? Dahlia's going to be talking to us about what, what do we do and what are the expectations that we can um, expect to see from senior stakeholders, from executives, when we get to that stage of being in a position to engage with executives um, and engage in decision-making within organisations. Dahlia, over to you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Steve. Um, hi, my name is Dahlia. Uh, I'm a researcher at Shopify. I'm actually based out of Berlin, and it's just around midnight right now. Uh, so look forward to catching a few more talks today and then catching up on the rest tomorrow via the live recording of the webinar. Um, thanks for joining me today, um, and I'm here to talk about what happens once we pull up a seat at the table and sit down. So uh, the topic of this presentation had actually been brewing on my mind uh, for quite a while before I wrote it, um, and I can probably trace it back to a stakeholder meeting that I attended um, circa 2018. Um, it was a monthly show and tell where the leads across my product area were invited to talk about what their teams had been up to and to present that work to more senior VP level stakeholders. And so one day we decided to invite a few individual contributors to come and present their work directly um, because we thought it would be a good an opportunity for them to get exposure to that type of environment and that type of context. Now, at the time, I hadn't thought that a lot of prep was needed for them. Uh, those particular individual contributors were generally pretty good at presenting their research and answering questions. Um, but as they, as they started talking about their studies, I found myself getting really agitated. Um, they started going through all of the details of their research. So the recruitment, the method, the data collection. And I'm just sitting there watching them and watching the VPs. And all I can think about is what are you talking about and why are you going through all of these details? I mean, at the time I understood perfectly well what they were trying to say, but I had a pretty good feeling that the VPs who were in the room possibly didn't understand and definitely didn't care about the particular story that the researchers were trying to tell about their work. And in the end, the VPs were really polite and they engaged with the researchers, but that moment really stayed with me. Um, and I felt so much anxiety at realizing that there was a huge gap between what the researchers thought the VPs cared about and what I suspected the VPs actually cared about. And I sort of became obsessed with not just why it had happened, but how we could actually prevent this from happening again in the future. Because that day, I realized that we are essentially talking to our leadership teams and executives the same way that we talk to our teammates, so the product managers, the designers, and the other researchers that we spend most of our time with day to day. And there are a few reasons why this happens and why it's problematic. When we're talking to our teammates, we are so used to getting into a certain level of granularity so as to even justify the validity of our findings. And so we tend to give all of the rationale behind our choice of method and how it was executed and the number of participants involved and the analysis techniques. And the reality is that even though our teams might care, VPs and senior stakeholders don't because they take it for granted that we already know how to do our jobs properly. What they're actually looking for instead is strong opinions. So they want to know what we really think and they want to see our insights being distilled into a clear position of what needs to be done next. 
And we tend to be uncomfortable with that because for our entire careers as researchers, we've actually prided ourselves in our ability to be impartial and we've worked really hard to eliminate our biases. But now all of a sudden we're being asked to take a stance. And we've overlooked the fact that our senior leadership teams and executives and VPs don't care about certain details because we've actually forgotten to take the time to understand what it is that they actually care about. We have gotten so caught up with understanding people who are external to our organizations that we've actually forgotten to apply the same level of curiosity to the people on the inside. So how do we find ourselves in this situation in the first place? Well, here's one way that we can actually trace back how our discipline has matured over the years, particularly in our relationship with executive stakeholders. In the beginning, all we sought was approval. We just wanted that buy-in for the time, for the resources, for budgets from our stakeholders to just even get to do research in the first place. And it was almost as if we needed to justify our existence as a discipline. And then we started to prove our worth. So we asked for more from our stakeholders and we sought their knowledge. We planned stakeholder interviews and we asked for their perspectives and the historical context that they had so that we could make sure that we weren't just solving problems in a vacuum. And as we got to know our stakeholders better, we asked for even more. So now we wanted more of their time. We started inviting them to sit in on our sessions and sending them video recordings and reports to read. And we made research a team sport as a way of making sure that when we did present our findings at the end, everyone would be bought into them because they had come along the ride. Finally, we started asking for inclusion at the forums at which the decisions that are based on our work are being made. We started asking to speak to our work directly and represent our own findings, and we started asking for a seat. Now, the seat is what my former colleague Dylan describes as the place where decisions are made and visions are crafted, directions are plotted. It is an opportunity to access a broad spectrum of individuals at the organization. It's a place where we can carry equal weight on strategy and prioritization with the people who do get to make all the decisions. Now, here's a plot twist for you. That fight for a seat, that one that's been so pervasive in our conversations in design and research in UX for a number of years now is actually a red herring. We have been focused for so long on getting that seat that we haven't realized that A, a lot of us are already there and B, Probably because we don't realize we're there, we're not entirely prepared for what comes next. I'm not alone in thinking this. The call for paper for the Advancing Research Conference a year ago actually highlighted this as one of the major issues that emerged from an industry-wide survey that the organizers had conducted. And the problem is that if we don't figure this out soon, we're actually in danger of losing the seat that we spent so long trying to get. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking, well, how could we possibly have a seat at the table already? Well, the thing is that that seat is not an actual seat. And I hope that most of you realize that having a seat isn't just part of being at the right meeting or in the right clique or in the right conversation. Because the moment that people see your work, you have a seat. And the moment that they start reading it or sharing it or internalizing it or quoting it, the moment that they start shifting their thinking and making decisions based on your work, they're actually giving you a seat. And by failing to recognize that, we are by extension failing to make the most of the seat we're being given. 
If you don't believe me though, here is some further proof for you. So 72% of researchers are actually doing research before any design or development works occurs, which means that teams are coming to us for direction early on. More than half of researchers are already getting time and attention from upper management and stakeholders. And if you're still looking for more proof, then literally take a look at all of research ops. Companies have become so bought into the role that researchers are able to play when it comes to informing strategy that they are investing in entire teams that are designed to support researchers in doing more of that type of work. So if I tell you that you've already got the seed, then the real question actually becomes what do you do now and how do you avoid the pitfalls I described earlier so that you can leverage that seed to its full potential? And this is really the meat of the presentation that I want to get into today. And I want to talk about three things that you can do to leverage the seed that you probably already have. The first one is to look for patterns, then to tell the right story, and finally close the loop. So let's get into the first one, which is all about looking for patterns. As researchers, one of our biggest responsibilities is to take the time to try and understand other human beings better. Our work is predicated on the idea that people are different from each other, that our users are different from us, and that is actually the very reason that we take time to study them in the first place. But are we actually applying that same mindset when it comes to our stakeholders and senior leadership teams? As a researcher, you might actually wanna approach this as a research question in and of itself and start to gather evidence to answer it. Now, those of you who maybe don't have a ton of opportunity to spend time with stakeholders and leadership teams might be wondering, how do I carry out this research if I don't actually have enough access to my participants? And the trick here is to look for information wherever you can. So look at the team emails that your executives and senior leadership teams are sending out. Look at presentations that they're giving, whether these are at annual general meetings or quarterly earning calls or town halls. If you have any opportunities to present your work to stakeholders or executives at check-ins or reviews, that's another great opportunity to see things in action. And look at any reports that they can write and share. So things like investment plans, strategies, visions, roadmaps. And once you've figured out where to find that evidence, you can actually start analyzing it for how they communicate and particularly pay attention to the tone of their conversations. So this is probably one of the most important things that I've learned on my time at the job, but also probably one of the least surprising. And that is that different people tend to communicate in different ways. Um, so people tend to fall broadly into one of three categories. The first one is what we call positive-based communication. And so people who fall into that category um, tend to see and communicate the positive side of things. And they will generally focus on the upside of proposed initiatives. The second one is fact-based communication, and people who fall into that category respond really well to facts. So when they're talking about new projects and new initiatives, they will tend to frame the potential impact of these initiatives by talking about numbers and research and other hard evidence. And finally, the third category, which in case you can tell, I personally fall under, and incidentally, so does my CEO, is intensity-based communication. So people like me, walk around believing that the sky is falling. And when we're talking about new projects, we will tend to paint a gloomy picture and say that if we don't work on these things, everything will probably go to shit and we're all gonna lose our job and the world is going to end. And the idea is that by understanding the different ways that people communicate, you can actually tailor the way that you communicate back to them to convince them of the ideas that you have. Now, after you start looking at how people are communicating, then you can start paying attention to what it is that they're actually talking about. 
So what's the language that they're using? And what are some of the things that they care about? For example, is it money? Do they talk about things like gross merchandising value or average order value, monthly recurring revenue, lifetime value? Is it people? Do they use terms like new signups and daily active users and monthly active users? Do they talk a lot about funnels? Do they use terms like conversion and churn and lead to prospect to customer numbers? And more importantly, do you actually understand all of the terms that I just said? And how comfortable would you feel communicating back in that language? And if you don't think you feel comfortable, then what would you need to study up on or brush up on in order to become comfortable? Now, everything I've talked about so far might seem a little bit abstract to you. So I'm going to try and ground it a little bit through a case study that I'm going to touch back on throughout the rest of this talk. And that's investment planning at Shopify. So a few years ago, uh, Shopify started growing really quickly from a few hundred employees to a fully fledged multi-thousand employee public entity. And uh, just to keep our team's abilities to function efficiently at that scale, we introduced the concept of product lines or almost mini companies within the larger company. And as we introduced product lines, we also introduced a process that we called investment planning, which is where each product line puts together a proposal for what they want to work on the following year so that they could get the resources to actually do that work. And the process usually involves um, leadership from UX and product management and engineering within each of those product lines, aligning on what their goals are, and then rolling that information all the way up the chain to the executive level. Now, you'll notice maybe that I didn't mention research anywhere during this process when I probably should have. Um, I mean, if people are going to be making plans on what problems they're going to solve, you would hope that these plans would at least be somewhat informed by problems that the users actually experience. Well, the process wasn't actually designed to include us, but it also wasn't explicitly designed to exclude us. And so we just chose to focus on the latter. And by the second year that this process was in effect, we practically inserted ourselves in the middle of all the action and we figured we were just gonna grab a seat anyway. And so what we did is we started looking at the investment plans from the first year that this process was in effect. And we looked at their content, the tone, the language that was being used. And then we held workshops with UX product management and engineering leaderships within the product lines to understand what it is that they thought we should be investigating. Most importantly, though, we didn't actually wait for the investment planning process to begin in order to get involved, because we knew that in order for our research and our insights to be taken into account, we were going to have to start this months in advance so that those insights could be delivered and used by the time that the investment planning process actually kicked off. So in some cases, that meant that we were doing part-time work um, several months in advance, just so that we can balance it with our day-to-day -day responsibilities. And in other cases, we were actually blocking time off. So taking a week, booking a space outside the office and going off to do a deep dive research sprint so that we could deliver recommendations by the end of one week. And then we started also figuring out how we could best communicate what we were learning with other people at the table. So beyond looking for patterns in how our stakeholders and senior leadership teams were communicating, we started practicing how we could reflect that style of communication back to them. And we organized a series of workshops for the researchers in our offices where we asked the, each researcher to write a two-minute pitch on what they were working on. And one of these pitches would be intended for a teammate that they work closely with and who would have a lot of context on their work. 
and the other one would be intended for a CEO and more focused on highlighting the impact that the research could have on the organization as a whole. Now, in the first round of this workshop, we practice giving those pitches to each other in somewhat of a safe space. Um, and to make the whole process a little bit less scary, we wrote each other anonymous feedback on post-its so that by the end of each session, each researcher walked away with a stack of post-its that would full of suggestions and tips on how they could improve their pitches. Now, everything I've talked so far about is just the first part of the strategy for leveraging your seed. Because once you've figured out the communication patterns or how you're going to say things, you have to figure out what it is that you're actually going to say or the story that you need to tell. Now, storytelling and UX isn't you. Um, Don Alicia actually wrote a pretty seminal book on that topic called The User's Journey, in which I highly recommend. Um, and she talked about how to apply user storytelling to the process through which we design and develop products. And since then, that concept has actually become so pervasive, uh, not just in UX as a whole, but especially in research, to the point where even if you just do a quick Google search on the terms user research and storytelling, you will find a ton of information. What I want to talk about is instead is how you can tell the right story, because the one that we're talking about here is a little bit different. Now, we as researchers are used to telling stories about our users and the experience that they have with the products that we build, so which features work well and which ones need to be fixed or added or removed. But what our stakeholders actually want to hear is different. They want to know whether to even invest in that product altogether in the first place. And we can give them long, complex reports, and I'm sure some people will read those. Uh, but what we really want to give them is an easy way to reference our work day to day when they are sitting at other tables that maybe we don't have a seat at. And to do that, we need to give them a memorable shorthand that can reference the more complex narratives that we're developing. And one way that we can pack a lot of depth without packing a ton of complexity when we're creating that type of shorthand is to tell a single story that can weave a narrative across many users and many products and across many experiences. And you probably have heard this one before, but what we're talking about here is essentially taking our work from the what to the so what. So going back again to our case study uh, on investment planning research at Shopify, um, in 2019, as part of the research we were doing for the process, we'd actually conducted a pretty extensive study to try and understand how trust is built when people shop online. And the version of the report that we presented to the product teams was thorough and it was detailed. It had comprehensive lists of all sorts of features that the team could build to improve trust or fix to prevent breaking trust. And for them, for those product teams, this was an invaluable resource. But we had to ask ourselves, to what extent would our senior stakeholders and executives actually care about that level of granularity? And so we took the very same findings, that same data, and we actually repackaged it into a different narrative for them. We summarized things into five tenets of how we could help buyers feel more confident when making decisions. And so now, instead of getting lost in feature-specific details, we could empower our stakeholders to lean on that memorable shorthand when they were deciding whether or not to invest in any particular new feature or product. And going back again to our communication workshops, we continued to practice the idea of telling different stories to different people. So after the first rounds where we presented our pitches to each other in a safe space, we actually started inviting people representing different audiences to our workshops and we pitched to them different narratives for the exact same work. 
And by repeating an exercise like that on the regular and with all kinds of different audiences, the idea is to really start developing an instinct for how we can shift the type of story that we tell to better resonate with the person who's listening to it at any given time. So now that you have the right story to tell and you've delivered it to your audience from what I hope has become a slightly more comfortable seat at that table, the last thing you need to do is actually something that we often tend to forget to do, and that is closing the loop. So going back to how the relationship between researchers and stakeholders has evolved and matured over time, I really believe that the final and missing piece here is feedback. Now, throughout this presentation, I've mentioned how critical it is for us to take time to understand the users within our organization as much as we do those who are on the outside. But the idea isn't for us to just try and understand how we can convince them to adopt the recommendations that we're making. It's also about helping us understand when and why our recommendations don't get adopted. So I'm sure all of us have been in situations where engineers will choose to not fix a certain user problem that we've uncovered, or executives will choose to delay investing in an opportunity that we've highlighted through our research. And we need to understand this because if we're going to spend time and resources and energy, not just doing the research, but meticulously crafting stories out of that research so that it resonates with our stakeholders and executives, we need to know how these stories are landing and what's actually happening when they don't. Now, the bad news is that we often forget to do this, but the good news is that with most of us being researchers or being comfortable with research, this is probably going to be the most easily actionable piece of feedback I can give you today. And it's all about closing the loop. So going back one last time to our example with investment planning research, our work didn't stop when we delivered the research. We actually sent the stakeholders and leads involved in the process um, a questionnaire after they had finished working on their investment plans. And we asked for specific examples of decisions that they might've made based on the research that we delivered and what else they would like to get out of that research in the future. And going back again to our communication workshops, not only did we pitch our work to different audiences, but we also asked them for feedback. So how well they understood the pitches that we delivered and how relevant or meaningful the work that those pitches described came across. And the idea, as I mentioned earlier, is to continue repeating these workshops in the same way that we should continue to iterate on all the different recommendations I've presented so far that were designed to help you make the most of your seat at the table. Now, I wanna leave you with one parting thought. My experience has been that stakeholders and executives aren't gating us out on purpose or just think that research isn't important. I'm sure there are the odd cases where this does happen, but the majority of companies aren't investing in growing their research disciplines just to then intentionally leave us behind when it matters. There is in fact a linear relationship between stakeholders just simply being able to find research and the importance that they place on that research when making decisions. So what I'm gonna do instead is to encourage you to take a step back and not only re-examine the role that we play at the table, but what others at the table are actually trying to do themselves. The idea of bounded rationality is that humans, including our stakeholders and executives who I hope, suspect, are also humans, will make what they believe are perfectly reasonable decisions with whatever imperfect information they have. And from where they're sitting, it's actually impossible for them to recognize the limits of that information. So when we pull up a seat at that table, the single most important thing that we can be doing 
is expanding the boundaries of their knowledge. Even though the context that we're providing is probably going to be one of many inputs that ultimately get weighed into their decision-making process, it can also play a pivotal role in making sure that those perfectly reasonable decisions actually get closer and closer towards also being the decisions that are optimal for our users. Thank you. Alia, thank you very much. That was, that was great.